chief here. Miss me? Soldiers wear helmets. You know the smell of yours, with its sweat-soaked leather molded to your head day after day in baking sun. You remember how long it took to break it in. Much later, it will be claimed, not by the man that killed you, but by another who happened to find it after it washed up on the beach. It would be brought home as a souvenir, then sold years later at the estate sale, and then again at a thrift shop, its true provenance evaporating into the ether. But when you wore it, it was yours. Not chosen, but issued, with every step of your life leading to the day you'd need it no longer. The bizarre path you were put on, ever driving towards a moment that you could not know. Every breath, every day, every hour, every minute, speeding to that instant you decided to charge. Decided? Was it a choice? For us, now, to examine that moment is a privilege. It's unfair to look at you in the heat of that battle, a reality owed only to the bitter tide that landed you there. Were you crazy, we ask? A zealot? Were you evil? Unfortunate? Were you following orders? Are you a hero? Was it fate? The big answer usually folds into who won. Because mostly, that's who tells the story. One cannot know what can only be known after death. But we know. Now, as we slip into that day, that hour, that moment, can we forego the flag stitched on the shoulder or the symbol stamped on the cigarette? Can we transcend the judgment of now? Can we but marvel at the magnitude of the human plight? Can you smell the sweat-soaked leather of that helmet you were issued? It's April 7th, 1945. 13.39 hours. The final battle has begun. This fight will be finished today. Sadaki's eyes slowly blink open. Through the bloodshot haze, he sees Petty Officer Otsuma methodically walking down the deck, picking up severed arms and legs as he finds them, and tossing them over the side. Otsuma always was a stickler for tidiness. An acrid fog of cordite enshrouds Sadaki's world, stinging his eyes, causing him to cough as he sits up. With his whole skull ringing, he scans his surroundings, 
but can't find his gun position. He's been thrown completely across the deck. Now aware of a throbbing on his forehead, he reaches up to feel a nice sharp shard of metal gouged into his scalp. He tugs it out with a squirt of blood. Just a little lower and it would have plunged through his brain. Must be that lucky amulet. He rises to his feet, but stumbles. The deck is on a slight angle, the starboard side lifting a few degrees out of the sea. Looking around, he hardly recognizes the great Yamato. Black smoke billows from massive craters in the deck and superstructure. Corpses are splattered everywhere, tangled with shredded pieces of gun mount. Sadaki only now is conscious of the eerie silence, punctuated only by the distant, muted shrieks of gut-shot dying men, but not the roar of hellcats. The planes have gone. The air is still. After a few painful steps, he spots Tadeki, slumped over a pile of spent magazines. He crouches, gripping his friend's hand. Tadeki coughs blood, but somehow manages a smile. Sadaki sees that his left quad has a fist-sized hole punched through it. He's bleeding out fast. That was a lucky shot you had, whispers Tadeki. Sadaki calms him, shedding off his shirt and using it to twist a tight tourniquet above the wound, causing it to bubble and Tadeki to wince. Sadaki assures him, you're okay. Tadeki manages to grin. Don't be a fool, he says. Sadaki hoists up his friend, and together they limp below deck in search of a medical station. On Yamato's bridge, stretcher bearers drag away corpses, mopping up human puddles and sprinkling clumps of sawdust. Rear Admiral Origa hums absently as Executive Officer Morishida scrambles to make sense of the damage reports that are now pouring in. He somehow seems optimistic, hoping against hope that the Americans had shot their bolt. Yesterday's kamikaze attacks must have had some effect on their strike capability. Although they'd barely made it 10 miles to Okinawa since being waylaid by Mitcher's marauders, maybe if they just grinned and grinded onward at maximum speed, made it to the cover of Nightfall, they might still have a chance to hit Okinawa with the pent-up rage of a thousand martyred Japanese sons. He orders the aft blisters filled with seawater, correcting the slight list. A torpedo-caused, out-of-control list was one of the greatest fears and could be an absolute death sentence for the ship. Although the Americans hit her with no less than five bomb strikes, four torpedoes, and countless rakings of .50 shells, planes from USS Essex alone would fire over 1.5 million rounds of .50 in their brief 18 minutes of action, it was going to take a hell of a lot more than that to put her down for good. Yamato has been thrashed, but she was far from crippled. The best Japanese cruiser, Yahagi, was foundering, having been smashed and stabbed by torpedoes and bombs. Although still afloat and able to put up some quality anti-aircraft fire, with her steering shot away, she was a sitting duck. Cruisers Asashimo and Hamakaze had been gutted and slipped beneath the waves for good. There were now just five escorts left to defend Yamato. The attack formation of Operation Tenichi was bloodied good, but by no means broken. 
Yamato's giant red and white rising sun battle flag, although charred and blackened by battle, was still too remarkably intact and flying proudly, as if in defiance of the vengeful American swarm. With Tadeki draped over his shoulder, Sadaki pushes through the shuffling crowd of wounded men, all converging on the ad hoc midship medic station. Yet below deck is eerily quiet. There are the low moans of the dying, sailors puking from toxic smoke inhalation, the snip of surgical scissors, the creaking rumble of fires and flooding echoing from deeper in the ship, but no hysterics. Sadaki shoves to the front and grabs a medic, yelling, This man needs immediate attention. He's bleeding out. The medic, busy stitching a throat-slashed gunner, barely spares a glance, curtly saying, That man is dead. Sadaki looks to his friend slung over his shoulder. Blue lips, ash-gray face. His head hangs lifeless. Sadaki stands stunned, now watching the puddle of blood rapidly spreading around his feet. Stretcher bearers shoved past with a shrieking gutshot man, and suddenly the warning sirens begin to wail. Clear this station! I'm about to be swamped! Put him around with the rest, shouts the medic. With Tadeki's feet streaking a bloody trail, Sadaki drags him to an open door, but freezes. Peering inside through rising steam, he's met with an ungodly scene. A sprawling, blood-red pool of human chum. Countless bodies float in mutilated, twisted clumps. It suddenly dawns on Sadaki that he had bathed in that very pool just yesterday. Shaved his head with a hundred other men in the showers just through the next door. This was the great warm water pool of the bathhouse. With nowhere else to put the mutilated dead, it had now become an ad hoc charnel house. His eyes are fixed on a glistening coil of intestine bobbing on the surface when... An unseen corpsman tosses another corpse into the bloodbath, splashing among the floating bodies and snapping Sadaki out of his stupor. Going about his grisly business, the corpsman grabs Sadaki, who's still slung on his shoulder, but Sadaki recoils, wrenching him away. The corpsman shouts, enough, he's gone, and then tries to grab him again, but Sadaki shoves him away, sending him slipping on the blood-slick floor. To hell with you then, he shouts, you'll be swimming in there soon enough. The corpsman disappears down the dark hallway. Refusing to toss his friend into that portal to hell, Sadaki drags Takeo into an adjacent room and sits him gently against the wall. With the all-ship alarm strobing red and the siren above howling, Sadaki stands over his friend, locked in a silent farewell. As he finally turns to leave, he stops short, now face to face with a scowling petty officer. The officer grills Sadaki with cruel eyes and growls, What's your post, sailor?
What must be understood here is the relationship between petty officers and privates. Their training was brutal. Their methods were vicious. They make the gunny sergeant in Full Metal Jacket or Sobel and Band of Brothers look like total pussies. Gunny, hats off to you, sir. May you rest in peace. The duty of the petty officer to make hard, utterly devoted sailors out of the malleable Japanese youth was to them a sacred mission. One carried out with religious zeal and marked by callous cruelty and liberal physical abuse. As the officer steps into Sadaki's face, he's hit by the reek of booze, spotting a nearly empty bottle of sake clutched in his hand. The officer looks down at the bottle and stumbles back, saying, No sense in wasting good booze, eh? He looks up, his eyes slow to find Sadaki's and sputters, Your head okay? Having forgotten all about his gashed head, Sadaki answers, Yes, sir. You hear that alarm? Snarls the officer. Sadaki answers through gritted teeth, now feeling his fury build. Yes, sir. Then get to it. You can come back down here when you're dead. Now, glowing with rage, Sadaki sprints towards the blaring sirens. As he emerges topside, he can hardly recognize the ship. Smoke billows from bomb craters. The superstructure and gun positions look like they've been cleaved by an immense battle axe. As men scramble to positions, he vaults over wreckage into his post, finding a handful of new loaders dragging ammo crates. When he arrives, they stop, their young faces searching him for direction. Sadaki parts them and approaches the gun with purpose. Slamming home the third magazine, he climbs into the gunner's seat. Staring into the eyes of these young replacements, he says, This gun does not stop firing until either the rifling melts or we are all blown to hell. The loaders nod with grim determination. Sadaki swings the triple barrels to the sky. Already that damn buzzing is back. Gargantuan 18-inch guns erupt skyward, jolting every man on the ship. Through the spiderweb gun sight, Sadaki now sees what looks like a vast cloud of black sesame seeds. Could those all be planes? On the signal pole, the infamous Z flag now slowly climbs its way up the masthead. All eyes turn from the incoming planes, now seeing the apocryphal red blue, black, and gold flutter in the wind. They all knew what it meant. The fate of the Empire rests upon this action. Each man is expected to do his duty. The final battle has arrived. The 18-inchers roar defiantly at the charging horde. Sadaki rips the charger and screams. Tenoheka Banzai. Ariga would have liked more time to catch his breath. 
By Executive Officer Morishita's watch, it was just a five-minute break since the last bombs fell. Too bad the incoming American pilots were getting impatient. With Maz and the Bella Wood Boys part done, flyers from carriers Essex, Cabot, Bunker Hill, and Bataan were now in range. Gillespie was proud of his boys, but by his estimation, they could have done better. He cursed the shitty weather and relinquished quarterbacking duties to a pal from the USS Essex, Lieutenant Harmon Utter. I'm Dream 11, a peacemaker. Handing over the reins. She's all yours. Copy your last, peacemaker. Much obliged. All safe. Harmon now peered down at the cruisers and destroyers, cutting jagged white S-curves, skillfully maneuvering into a defensive ring around that giant juggernaut below. He was truly impressed by the incredible fight they were putting up, but as far as he saw it, the Japanese were cornered. With massive flak bursts exploding in the sky, his boys were already catching lead. They were flying into, as one pilot put it, quote, a regular 4th of July show. The flashes of red, pale green, and electric orange were meant to distinguish Yamato's shell bursts from other battleships in action when firing at the same target. They never did figure out radar guidance for their guns, but now that Yamato was the last of her kind left on the sea, it was her multicolored signature of booming death alone that the U.S. flyboys were now racing into. And now the hunt was on. From 6,200 feet, an array of hell divers push over into insane, twisting, rolling, corkscrewing dives, screaming down on a nest of writhing vipers. Miles away on the bridge of his flagship, Admiral Mitcher mutters, Sick'em, boys. On deck, every gun opens up, lending their cackling voices to the insane, ear-splitting chatter. The sky fills with blazing lead as black crows swarm down upon their carrion. From 1,500 feet, a Helldiver squad of four sheds chunks as bullets shred through their thin aluminum skin. With Yamato sprawling out below, spitting fire upwards, they still manage to punch through. Four hits from four castle to quarterdeck with thousand-pound bombs. At gun 36, Sadaki feels the heat blast as explosions flash across the deck, the concussion threatening to cave in his ribcage. The planes are diving so low, he can see the glinting goggles and bared teeth of the Yankee pilots as they pull out of their dives and escape to the heavens. They were hitting the bastards, shredding them up, but they still managed to score hits and get away. The 25mm guns that Yamato depended on for close anti-air weren't even approved for use by the US Navy. 
Sure, they fired a much bigger round than the beloved 50 cal ma deuce rounds the planes were spitting, but being clip-fed, they were slower to reload and heated up the barrels right quick. They were older French Hotchkiss guns, just stacked in threes. Even though there were truly a shit ton of them, they were slow to track and had a low rate of fire. And the big 5 and 6 inch guns were simply not meant for this kind of swarming attack. This ship was built for a battlefield that no longer existed. And now, that fact was being laid bare. From the bridge, Captain Riga is trying to put his less damaged port side to the incoming enemy when he's alerted to a row of Avengers racing in low and fast. A child of the old school, Riga comes from an era in which battleship men were expected to live and die by their broadside. This would be the first time in the battle that he would choose not to engage in an evasive maneuver, but rather bring the full might of Yamato's nine giant cannons to bear. He screams orders to load Sanshiki shells and set a one-second fuse. This was the ultimate game of chicken, and Ariga refuses to blink first. As the giant ship's body slowly turns to starboard, her big guns twist to the incoming targets and erupt. Shells scream out of the massive quick-rolling smoke plumes, cutting through the air and burst via time. Exploding into a wall of shrapnel and seawater. Ariga's voice bellows over the loudspeaker, Steady men, keep firing. Trying to understand this moment, why he chose this move, is difficult to fathom. It's truly an absurd maneuver, trying to both shoot the planes out of the sky as well as blow up the torpedoes in the water. He was now staking all on his formidable offense being his best defense. The 11 incoming Avenger pilots were veterans from the USS Essex, claiming battle honors as far back as Guadalcanal. To their eyes, this unimpeded setup was better than a training run. That is until their target disappeared behind a curtain of booming lead. Yet, there exists a remorseless professionalism only cultivated by having seen the elephant, as they say. These men had done this dance before. They wouldn't blink either. The Americans charge on, not a one escaping damage, but holding course, smashing through the fire and sea spray, finally loosing their fish hot and true, and peeling skyward. Unable to see the streaking torpedoes through their own flak storm, there was never any chance of avoiding them. Ariga's voice booms over the loudspeaker, hold on men, as Yamato is drilled by four nearly simultaneous torpedo strikes that shake the whole ship like Armageddon. Now this was getting perilous, and it was the list that could prove most lethal. Once out of control, regardless of how much counterpumping and flooding, there was no turning back. 
Rodriguez claws his way to his feet, pulling himself up by the stanchions. With no let-up, the bridge is an insane storm of bullets. He screams for counter-pumping to correct the list, but nothing can be heard over the roar of screaming lead. There was no communication to the radio room. It was gone. They hadn't even sent any messages back to Combined Fleet since the initial attack at about 12.30. And a lot had happened in the last 40 minutes. With her brain stem effectively severed, Below Decks had become an absolute shit show. With no telephones and no central direction, damage control had begun flooding compartments to correct the lethal list, but it was all happening too slow. The lights flicker, then darkness fell upon the ship's cavernous underworld. Now deprived of power, the big guns stop barking. Yamato's protective flak storm goes silent. As fires rage deep within the ship, a damage control crewman stomps through knee-deep water, racing the flames to the magazine, feeling his skin fry as he shoulders shut the massive red-hot door. Frantic men dive through vents, shrieking while climbing over piles of corpses in the pitch-black darkness, desperately trying to outrun their own counter-flooding as watertight doors slam shut, sealing off their only escape. The freakish echoes of trapped, burning and drowning men sing off the steel walls. An older seaman squats dead drunk and passed out against the wall, an empty bottle of Johnny Walker floating on the rising water between his knees. Some men don't run, simply staying at their posts, just waiting their turn to die. Now Lieutenant Utter sees his chance to strike. The big beast is listening bad. He could even see the red-leaded paint of Yamato's underbelly rising out of the water. It even seems like her big guns are seized up for the moment. This was it. Go time. He scrambles his boys and they plunge into a laddered, steeper, more accurate attack. And yet, even though the big guns are silent, all those machine guns and cannons, plus the unending fuselage from the surviving cruisers, they are still putting up so much lead in the sky that visibility is nearly non-existent. But nonetheless, Utter's boys are able to hit that magic combo for a hot and true torpedo run. Speed of less than 250 knots, coming in at less than 300 feet, and dropping the fish at no more than 1,200 yards at target. Riga rages at Morishita, trying to make sense of the new damage reports pouring in, demanding more flooding and more pumping to correct the out-of-control list. If this kept up, the whole damn ship would roll over, but every pump is working at max capacity. And that's when Riga sees the incoming spread of torpedoes. Hissing white arrows racing towards their rising starboard side. Suddenly ecstatic, Riga dashes to the rail, screaming exuberantly like a madman. This way, little fish, this way! Inviting the warheads to slam into their starboard side. And they do.
hitting low, piercing Yamato's hull and ringing the ship like a temple gong. Riga slaps Morishita on the back, yelling with glee, Aha! That's better than any of your damn pumps! By gouging new holes on the opposite side of the plunging port side, water gushes in, sending men in the fire room scurrying away like rats, but leveling the ship out just enough for the generators to sputter back to life. In moments, the big guns are back online, heralding their return with a concussive roar. It was a pretty fucking expensive way to fix a list, but I guess this is a good example of two wrongs making a right. Well, at least for the moment. By now, the low cloud cover was becoming a serious benefit to the attackers. Invisible until it was too late, Hellcats and Helldivers from USS Bataan pop out of the gray ceiling without warning. Their machine guns shredding the deck like chainsaws, pulverizing the giant ship with high explosive. Although shredded, mangled, coming out of their dives looking like a pit bull's chew toy, most of the planes managed to limp back home, trailing black smoke, riddled with shrapnel, but able to triumphantly pancake onto their own carrier deck. You simply can't say enough about those wonderfully rugged American machines. They would take the hurt, yet the pilots would live to paint little Japanese kill flags on their next plane. On Yamato's deck at Gun 36, Sadaki's world had become one unending hellish nightmare. By now, half of the gunners had been blasted to bloody chunks or splayed open, finishing their final earthly moments screaming in agony amid the hellish din of battle. Yet the gunners are showing inhuman levels of courage and gallantry. They do not abandon their posts. Boys who were virtually untrained when compared to pre-war standards were fighting their first real battle with the bravery of hardened veterans. Along with Sadaki's, the barrels of every functioning gun blaze wildly at targets that seem to appear out of thin air, roaring down on top of their heads, some catching lead, bursting into flames and smashing down into the sea. This had to be the fifth attack wave. The sixth? How many more could they possibly have? A squad from Bunker Hill now forms up, getting their first looks at the hellstorm below. They were new blood. This was their first real action, and every man took off with the burning desire to be the pilot who would slay Yamato. But now seeing her in the flesh, a volcano of fire erupting out of her, they couldn't help but be in awe. Even cleaved and hacked by bomb strikes, she was a sight to behold. And those guns! Intel had them figured at 16 inches. The ship had a total of 45,000 tons, but this was something else. I guess the American mind just refused to believe that those, quote, scrawny nips could outbuild them. But they had. With their grand prize hissing fire like a coiled snake, the Bunker Hill boys push over and dive into the kill zone. 
It was the classic squeeze play. No matter which way she turned, she was gonna catch something. But charging into that booming light show was an asshole puckering experience. As one pilot put it, quote, on the way in, I was working for the Navy. On the way out, I was working for myself and my crew. Bullets rake the gun tubs. Sadaki's loader bursts into a flash of red, blinding him in a shower of gore, a chunk of his gun twanging off and stabbing into his knee. Sadaki burns his fingers on the hot chunk of steel as he pulls it out. Keeping pressure on the wound, he searches a nearby corpse for a fresh bandage but finds none. He takes the bandage off his head and transfers it to his knee, shrieking as he pulls it as tight as he can. Looking to his left, he sees one of his young replacement loaders, with blood dribbling down his chin. The boy holds his blown-out guts in with two hands. As his dazed eyes lock with Sadaki's, he says, Don't worry, Yamato will never sink. Sadaki rolls over, limping on his good leg, and climbs back onto gun 36. Strike leader Harmon Utter surveys the scene from the bird's eye perch of his Hellcat. Yamato is getting absolutely slammed by so many goddamn hits. Torpedoes, thousand-pound bombs. How many? How the hell could he know? Surely she was doomed, but it was incredible that she was still up, still fighting like hell, still pouring flak into the sky, still killing his courageous pilots charging into the breach. Somehow, after all that had been thrown at her, she was still taking it. And Utter was finally getting fed up with this shit. He had already called five death-defying runs at that monster, but he wanted another. I guess the sixth time would have to be the charm. And Six was certainly pushing his luck, but goddammit, something had to be done about this. Utter tally-ho is a 19-strong force from USS Cabot. Ten Avengers, eight Hellcats, and this time, he was going in himself. There was a standing embargo on strike leaders charged with quarterbacking duty from leading their own attack runs, but fuck it. Utter had come here for that battleship. The time to take her was now. On his call, the U.S. warbirds plunge again, back down into that typhoon of steel. Lighting up the great behemoth with simultaneous torpedo strikes and bombs. wrenches his bird back out, twisting his head in time to see the sea boil up around her and multiple eruptions plume across her deck. Couldn't hit her any harder. As the flyers from Wave 2 head home, the long softening up process was over. 
the scene for the final massacre was set. Yamato's escorts were now starting to char in this American-made furnace. The destroyer Kasumi took a torpedo to the stern, blasting away her steering, yet she still plowed on, zombie-like, through the water. Out of control, she nearly crashes into Yamato. As she passes by mere feet away, the Kasumi sailors stand in horrified awe, stunned to see the insane damage Yamato has taken. The cruiser Fuyotsuki is stung by rockets fired from whistling Corsairs, but they're still prototypes and they don't explode. Somehow relatively unscathed, she's staying lucky through the deluge of havoc raining down on her. Torpedoes slit harmlessly beneath her hull. It was her incredible acceleration and nimble evasion that was keeping her in this fight. Same for Yukikaze. Quick and agile, she was impossibly skirting around bombs whose near-miss explosions soak her deck. These two sisters were somehow managing to keep up their screaming chorus of fire. Hatsushimo isn't so lucky. She's listing bad, her afterdeck puking black smoke, battered like Hatton after the Mayweather fight. Tsuyutsuki's superstructure is pulverized, her foredeck heaped with corpses, but the lead cruiser Yahagi has taken the worst of it. Thrashed and bludgeoned by bombs and torpedoes, the sea is now flooding over her deck. As Hellcats scream down upon her, her magazine explodes into a massive fireball. Flash frying every man taking cover below. Boiling the lungs of every man in the engine room. Yet somehow, through all this, as the teeth of the meat grinder shred them alive, Every gun that is still functioning is firing. Somehow, as Yahagi's magazine bursts into flame, as the ocean swallows her down to oblivion, as Hellcats rain hell down upon her, the shirtless, Black gunpowder-stained, war-mad, bonsai-screaming gunners on her deck are still pumping lead into the sky. Still claiming kills as Helldivers are shattered. Spinning out of control and crashing into the sea amid the triumphant cheers from the wounded heaped on her deck. Misses thump Yahagi's hull and shower her deck with oil-slick seawater. A damage control officer chops loose the anchor, sending it splashing to the bottom to correct the growing list. Ensigns drag the mutilated wounded to cover. Petty officers scream over the din, assigning fresh hands to blood-spattered, newly-empty gun posts. A hissing torpedo from God knows where slams into her with a tremendous explosion, throwing her stern up and out of the water. Another strikes her starboard side, 
its blast flinging a confetti of corpses 60 feet into the air. Through Yahagi's intercom, the shrill voice of the torpedo officer screams for permission to dump their load of Type 93 torpedoes, which could blow at any second. Captain Hara complies, but as they're hoisted over with the winch crane, they are peppered by machine gun bullets and explode. Tearing down the main mast and sending wreckage crashing onto the scrambling men on the deck. The bridge was about to collapse. Rivets pop as steel plates wrench loose. Meanwhile, the circling U.S. pilots were just lacing up their boots. Yahagi's teeth were on the curb, and now it was time to stomp. Roaring helldivers charge through the flak screen, their deafening drum of machine guns climaxing with the ear-splitting blast of a thousand-pound bomb which obliterates turret number one. Cleaving her forecastle in half. As the once-proud cruiser begins to tear apart, another squadron of Avengers torpedoes are already hissing through the water, aiming to spear the bitch for good. the ruined bridge of Yahagi, Captain Hara pulls himself up to his feet as mangled bodies thrown into the air by the torpedo blast splash down all around him in slow motion. His skull ringing from who knows how many torpedo hits, he tries to make sense of his unrecognizable ship. A screaming sailor, scorched and blinded by bursting steam pipes, howls as he splashes past through ankle-deep water, tripping over ruined bodies. The spastic cough of her last functioning deck guns can still be heard. His brain can barely process the utter carnage. A voice behind him says what he's failing to process. I guess it's time to get out of here, says Rear Admiral Kamora. Hara turns, bows deeply in apology, and gives the order to abandon ship. He cues his signalman to flash Isokazi, the closest still fighting destroyer, to swing over and save what crew she could. But as she knifes through the swell, her engines roaring to their rescue, diving aircraft quickly turn their attention to the little destroyer. Hara and Komora helplessly watch Isokaze disappear behind a crashing forest of white geysers. The destroyer is thumped by a murder of dive bombers, emerging from the sea spray with her bow pouring black smoke, seemingly chomped by shark attack. Just like those boys marching into the mangroves on Ramri Island, they were on their own. Standing in rising ankle-deep blood mixed with oil mixed with sea, 
Hara feels Komora's hand grip his shoulder, his shaking finger pointing to the eastern sky. Through the cloud break, Hara's eyes widen as he spots the next attack wave. At least a hundred planes, some of which were breaking formation and heading their way. The time was 1342. Lieutenant Herbert N. Hook was having a shitty day ever since he left the USS Yorktown. His engine was cutting out every few minutes thanks to a busted fuel line, and he was already relying on his emergency wing tank. Now, pushing through low cloud cover with failing visibility and pissing rain, he really wasn't even sure if he was going to make it. But one thing he was for damn sure about was he wasn't turning back. Now, finally arriving in the thick of it, his headset was just a screaming garble of voices, all talking on the coordinator's frequency. Shit, he wasn't even supposed to be charged with quarterbacking duties, but he hadn't seen his strike leader since takeoff. He now found himself flying into an utterly chaotic situation. Planes with zero coordination or communication were buzzing all over the place. Some on fire, some smoking, some chased by machine gun fire. It was hard to tell who was on their way in and who was getting the hell out. But his day was about to get a lot better. Down below, he clocked the little flashes of AA fire, betraying the position of a nice fat cruiser. It was Yahagi, dead in the water, seemingly begging for death. He gathers whatever assortment of Avengers, divers, and cats from passing groups that he could and tally hose him to target. This is Merlin for anybody near Vector 24-1. Got eyes on, 11 o'clock low. Who's up for a little cleanup detail? The men on Yahagi see the incoming swarm, and chaos breaks out as they throw themselves overboard. Men launching the only lifeboat are ripsawed by strafing machine gun fire. Shredding the boat and slaughtering all those in it. A pair of junior officers splash down the stairs below deck, wading through hip-deep water to the still-intact number three magazine room and climb on top of the crates of live shells. But their plan to go out with a bang is cut short when a petty officer grabs one by the collar and drags him off, sending him splashing. The officer screams, this is my place, and orders them to the surface. They would have died there. Let this ship be their fantastic funeral pyre. Go out like true samurai, becoming the very iteration of all those force-fed notions of bushido and manliness. But the look of burning fury in the eyes of that petty officer sends them scrambling back topside. After all, they could not impose on his post, the place he had chosen to die honorably. With the sea rushing over the steel deck of his command post, Captain Hara kicks off his shoes. As the world around him begins to boil with the concussion of bombs and the sting of bullets, he leaps into the sea. Kicking away with all his might, he finds himself fighting through black, soupy oil and is sucked down along with the sinking ship.
the air, Hook's boys rip down from all angles, practically fighting each other to put a bomb on that cruiser. It's a goddamn free-for-all, and everybody's spoiling to get in on this kill. Yahagi is hit by, I don't know how many bombs. It's as if it's raining bricks on the poor thing. But even as they do, US planes are hit with nasty AA fire from Yamato and her remaining escorts. Even though the destroyer Isokaze is a flaming wreck, she still manages to shred a helldiver from Yorktown. The plane bursting in midair, its shattered pieces crashing down on the thrashing sailors of Yahagi. These Japanese just never knew when to quit. In fact, they didn't quit. Even as the water closed over his head, there was a gunner on Yahagi still putting lethal rounds into the sky. So, as Maximus said, what you do in life echoes in eternity? Well, to these modern samurai, it was how you die that defines your legacy for all time. And maybe... That's why the Americans didn't stop shooting. Yahagi is crushed by falling bombs. The sea around her boils with spraying white water. She rolls over, capsizing and plunges below the waves. But she doesn't go quietly. Just after slipping below the water, she explodes in a submarine volcanic eruption. charges up and out of the sea, crackling into white-orange flame as it breaks the surface. Yahagi was dead. Lieutenant Hook, still spitting mad for having lost more men against an already sunk ship, pulls his plane around and plants his last bomb right on the forward deck of that little son-of-a-bitch Isokaze. Turning her five-inch cannon into a fireball and shutting her up for good. But as I said, the Americans didn't stop there. Remember those Marines on the beach at Okinawa, terrified of the kamikazes, the ones that they couldn't get to stop shooting after a full half an hour? Well, when Americans want something dead, they make for damn sure. Captain Hara claws his way up through the ink, his lungs about to burst, and finally breaks the surface, puking up oily seawater. He grabs hold of a chunk of wreckage, and wiping the black burning goop from his eyes, he now finds himself surrounded by his men, all fighting to keep their heads above the clawing oil. And that's when those heads start exploding. Struck by whizzing 50 caliber bullets, they burst like watermelons. Spraying red-pink chunks of brain and skull across the surface of the water as roaring hellcats rip the air above.
Now I want you all to hear this and hear it good. Lieutenant Hook banks his bird around again and methodically sprays the desperately thrashing survivors with his machine guns. And his boys follow. The Americans dive again and empty their guns into those helpless men writhing below. Now, I need to read you this excerpt from Russell Spur's fantastic book because there's just no way of saying it better. Quote, The Americans felt no compunction about slaughtering their helpless foes. They had always fought a blatantly racist war in the Pacific. And so had the Japanese. Headlines seeking brass hats openly declared that killing Japs was no worse than killing lice. Reports of Japan's atrocities against war prisoners and the unnatural fanaticism of the kamikaze combined to convince the Americans that these were inhuman freaks, deserving of little mercy. The apogee of this brutalization would be reached four months later at Hiroshima. So question. In World War II, did Americans machine gun helpless enemy survivors? Answer. You're goddamn right they did. The Japanese were a foe that made monsters of men. Now, that's probably true for all wars, especially this war, one marked by so much inhuman violence. But let's not pretend that we, the quote, good guys, the Americans, were absolved from this sin. I'm not trying to play blame game or make false equivalents, but we used the very same strategies as the Nazis did in Russia. Cast the foe as inhuman. Use race. Use their otherness to allow yourself to kill them without guilt or hesitation. That's how you make a good soldier. That's how you win a war. And it's ugly as fuck. Now, we'll be getting into this much more thoroughly very soon, but I find this to be a very revealing moment and one that is impossible to ignore. But let's table that for a moment. There's still a battle to be won. At his silent gun tub, Sadaki stares absently at his smoldering emperor's cigarette, watching the glowing ember burn through the imperial seal stamped on the paper. A headless loader sits in the opposite seat, his hands still gripping the gun traverse. It felt like forever since the last bombs had whistled down. Truly, an eternity had passed since then. A whole fifteen minutes. Sadaki's addled brain was now thinking of the kamikaze who had died yesterday in clearing the way for their attack. They were all gods by now. And he'd soon be one too, he guessed. But it didn't feel the same. 
sitting here among his butchered comrades, with smoke billowing from giant scooped-out bomb craters. It was all too surreal. This was less elegant than how the pilots must have spent their last moments, certainly different than how he had imagined. Yet, the end result was the same. When did one become a god? At the moment of death? If he was killed right now by some stray bullet, would he awaken in Minotogawa? Was it that simple? Ariga's voice again squawks through the loudspeaker. Something like words now echo across the scarred deck, but Sadaki can't really hear them. Blood was leaking from his shattered eardrums, making everything sound as if filtered through a tin can. Sadaki doesn't even look up as the next wave of American fighters growl into position. The big guns again blast skyward, the concussive shockwave rattling his heart in his chest. With that evil buzzing returning, he again finds himself alone at gun 36. On the bridge, Ariga is still humming. It's now become something of a nervous tick. He tightens the chin strap on his steel helmet while watching little black sesame seeds break through the clouds. Born from the carrier USS Intrepid, which, as you listen to this, especially you New Yorkers, the Intrepid is in fact floating right now on the Hudson River. Shit, you could even listen to this while standing on her deck if you want to. Having taken off from that very deck, 14 dive bombers now bear down on the stricken Yamato. The battered behemoth had been hit with no less than seven armor-piercing bombs, plus six torpedo strikes in that last round alone. But like a cornered, wounded animal foaming with rage, she's still somehow putting up clouds of nasty, accurate flak. Something which I can only expect puts a big, evil grin on the face of the god of war who is no doubt intently watching from his grandstand seat in the clouds. The motherfucker probably needs more popcorn by now. As they push over into their attack, every plane gets stung and bitten on the way in, but they still punch through. Bombs rain down on Yamato. 27 of them, if the combat reports are to be believed. Armor-piercing high explosives turn the sea around her into a boiling white geyser. What didn't hit directly was doing almost as much damage as the ones that did. The destructive concussion of near misses, popping metal plates and wrenching open already gaping holes. The sea pours in again. Damage control officers stare at the clinometer, 
watching the list spike as the gut-shot Leviathan rolls 20 degrees to port. Captain Ariga screams through the voice pipe for more counter-pumping, but the complex system of valves and blisters at this point is completely fucked. With ruthless American vengeance, this third wave shows no mercy. Helldivers screech down, shredding wounded men crawling on the deck. Another direct bomb strike next to the smokestacks blasts two machine guns over the side. The list is accelerating. The damage officers are helpless. With a heavy heart, Ariga orders the starboard engine room flooded. One desperate last-ditch effort to right the ship. Below deck, at least 300 men are trapped behind watertight doors that slam shut as the sea rushes in. There's controversy as to whether these men were given enough time to get the hell out before Ariga sealed them into their watery tombs, but at this point, what's the fucking difference? On Yamato, death was now a ravenous entity, gorging indiscriminately. The ship is then rocked by a beauty of a torpedo strike. slamming into her stern, jamming the rudder left and sending the ship twisting into a helpless spiral. All power cuts. Yamato's great turrets are finally silenced, fixing mutely skyward, as if turned to stone. On the bridge, Captain Ariga and the others scrape themselves off the blood-slick floor. The whole room now tilts at a Dutch angle, dipping towards the sea. With a sea-soaked, white-gloved hand, Admiral Ito hoists himself up by the rail. Gentlemen, he says. Each man turns as their commander breaks his steely silence. In a pause that no words could possibly fill, Admiral Ito shakes each man's hand with grim formality, then snaps a rigid salute. As the men return it, Ito stares into the eyes of each of his battle-ragged staff. Save yourself, he says. I shall stay with the ship. And with that, Rear Admiral Seichi Ito bows deeply and descends the spiral ladder down to his personal quarters. He disappears inside, locking the door behind him, and is never seen again. Executive Officer Nomura stomps onto the bridge, breathless from sprinting up from the depths. He finds the staff looking pale in the wake of Ito's cold sayonara. Nomura approaches Captain Ariga, 
who stands frozen, staring out into the rising smoke and coughs out his report. Sir, he says, we are sinking. There is nothing we can do. Ariga does not answer. He seems not to hear him or anything. Absently, he watches a lone gunner below, stripped to his loincloth, screaming into the sky while still firing off short bursts from his 13mm heavy machine gun, his butchered comrades piled amongst spent shell casings around his feet. Nobora is now shouting, Sir, please, there is no time. Give the order to abandon ship. But the words hit Ariga as a muted echo. Sir, I beg you. Ariga finally turns to Nobora. With tears rolling from his bleary eyes, he nods sharply. Do it, he says. Nobora grabs the all-ship microphone and keys in, but his voice cracks as he opens his mouth. Part of him still could not believe what he was about to say, could not believe what he had witnessed with his own eyes. Attention all hands, prepare to abandon ship. This is the commanding officer's order. Abandon ship. Nobura returns the mic to the receiver with finality. He approaches Ariga who stands staring at the horizon, his hands folded behind his back. But before he can say a word, Ariga turns and says, See that you make it off of this ship, Nobura-san. Someone must live to tell our story. Nobora bows and leaves the captain standing at his bullet-peppered, blood-spattered battle station. Speakers squawk through the doomed vessel, a scene that defies imagination takes shape. Deep below decks, at least a thousand men were already completely trapped behind layers of sealed, watertight doors. But that scene you're probably expecting, the one of panicked men crawling over one another in a race of the damned, all fighting to the surface, that's not what took place. Now, let me know when this little tagline gets old, but... Nobody does death like the Japanese. The men in the engine rooms outright refused to leave their posts, working while the sea poured in around them. Boys in the auxiliary radar room huddled together in a corner, locked in paralysis, just waiting for the end. As the loudspeaker blared the order to abandon ship, men in the magazine refused to move. Every one of them drowned at their post. Not that they would have had much of a chance of getting the hell out of there anyway. Yeah, things are getting downright kooky now. 
A young officer sloshes down to the senior ward room where the sacred portrait of the Emperor was kept. He slams the iron door behind him, cranks the wheel lock shut, and as far as anyone knows, if you swim to the bottom and find the wreck of Yamato and cut open that door with an underwater blowtorch like fucking James Cameron or some shit, you'd probably find that officer's skeleton, still clutching the portrait, still standing guard over it as we speak. He died to make sure the sacred portrait of his imperial majesty would not somehow float to the surface and fall into enemy hands. Just digest that for a second. Can you see yourself doing that? Would you ever feel that as your duty to die, making sure a portrait of the president didn't fall into enemy hands? What the fuck, man? I just... I mean, extenuating circumstances, extreme moments, they certainly happen in war all the time, but this is just nuts, isn't it? In the chart room, navigation officers were tying themselves to the map table. Old school veteran officer Koyama was lashing himself to Yamato's great steering wheel, tightening the knots with his teeth as the cold water rises above his knees. This order to abandon ship would be the first order he had ever willfully disobeyed. From the moment the intercom started screeching, abandon ship, young officers had started tying themselves to the damn fixtures. Chief of Staff Morishita was now raging room to room with his fists flailing, screaming, abandon ship, while punching and slapping rope out of the hands of death-determined young men. Upon finding his own signals officer trusting himself to his desk, Morishita punches him in the side of the head and throws him out, screaming, you know an order when you hear one. Get topside, dammit. Bewildered, Terrified sailors pour out onto the weather deck, awestruck upon seeing for the first time the insane damage their beautiful flagship had been subjected to. Executive officers were now worried about a rush over the side. Trying to calm them, they handed out candies and emperor cigarettes, telling the men they had to piss before jumping into the water, which led to a bizarre scene of a hundred men all lined up across the now radically sloping deck laughing maniacally as they piss into the rising sea. Just yards away, an old-school gunnery officer knelt next to his destroyed gun tub, staining his knees in the pooled blood of his men. With eyes fixed to the horizon, he rips open his tunic and plunges his dagger into his stomach, slitting open that neat hole for his soul to escape and spilling his guts onto the teakwood deck. Unseen by anyone on deck, six Avengers from USS Yorktown were now racing towards the stricken ship. As they approached, this time there was no flak to greet them. The skies were eerily clear. Attack leader Tom Stetson was taking his time. This was his second approach run, 
The first wasn't quite perfect, but this time, he could see Yamato's red painted lead torpedo belt rising out of the water, presenting an absolutely gorgeous target. He was going to tear her guts out. With his squad flying tight as teeth, skimming the waves at 800 feet, they dropped their torpedoes at 1,500 yards. The fish cut white scars through the sea, racing to her wide-open, soft, vulnerable underbelly. Up on the slanting bridge, a messenger is helping Captain Ariga tie himself to the compass binnacle when the warheads strike. jolts the entire ship like a sledgehammer to the skull. Ariga would have been thrown across the cabin, but his ropes hold, the force nearly ripping his arms out of their sockets. Long live the Emperor, he cries. Ariga wasn't exactly following that well-known but misinterpreted tradition of the captain going down with the ship. It's actually British naval doctrine that the commanding officer is simply last to leave the ship, not expected to literally go down with it. What Ariga is doing is something far more ancient. This is his warped act of atonement, the Bushido Apology. This is seppuku by Battleship. Sadaki clings to the railing while Hellcats roar above his head, buzzing close enough for him to easily see the pilot's white faces. The Americans are still raking the mutilated ship. The Hellcat pilot's favorite nickname for their planes, affectionately called Grinning Monsters, had never been more appropriate. As they growl through the sky, their bullets turning scurrying men into pink puffs of human vapor. And they didn't stop either. Swooping down almost leisurely, they blaze the long acres of hacked, gouged, bomb-bitten, corpse-strewn ship now totally unopposed, like malicious blue vultures with stars painted on their wings getting their licks in while God's back's turned. A stray round severs the main mast flagpole, sending the shredded and charred rising sun battle flag fluttering into the sea like a scene from some old wartime oil painting from a bygone era. Half-naked Japanese sailor leaps into the water after it to save it. Everything was happening fast now. On deck, Sadaki grips the rails of his gun tub as the barrels swing helplessly on their mount. The beginnings of an earthquake rumbles beneath his feet. Wood crunches and splinters, 
Metal squeals as it's twisted and wrenched under insane pressure. The ship now rolls 50 degrees to port, sending countless carcasses and empty shell casings clanging off the steel stanchions as gravity throws them into the sea. Sadaki's gun tub begins to rip out of the teakwood deck as the starboard vaults skyward. Could this be it? Part of him still could not believe it. Yamato was unsinkable, even for the Americans. Sadaki is now riding a falling mountain. As the bolts holding his gun rip loose, he leaps off clinging to the now vertical rail as the whole iron and metal gun mount rips free. Tumbling down and crashing off the midship's upper works. Flinging bodies, shell casings, guns, and a spray of blood and oil on impact. Other gun tubs snap off and plummet. Corpses cartwheel down from the canting tower, which is now almost level with the sea. great ship rolls over with speed, her giant smokestack crashing into the water. Sucking helpless men down her giant throat. Sadaki clambers over the rail, now on the hull of the moving ship as it rolls, capsizing like a giant iceberg calving into the sea. He watches in horrified awe as the gargantuan ship smashes down. Spitting a tidal wave of white sea spray as she settles on her face. Sadaki clings to the barnacle-encrusted hull, now crawling up the mountain towards the peak of the keel. As he summits, he sees countless other men who've also made it this far, crawling like ants across the sprawling hull. The four massive propellers, never meant to be seen so naked, now gleam like bronze temple pinnacles in the fading light, still slowly spinning as they vault skyward. It was an utterly surreal scene. Sadaki sees men thrashing for life amid the wreckage, pulled back towards the ship by Yamato's great sinking suction. Yet, the men perched atop this crashing skyscraper were actually singing. Sadaki could hear the chorus of the national anthem bleated out in hoarse verses from ragged throats. This is a detail that I have confirmed from three different sources, including one first-hand account. They were singing. In those bizarre minutes while the great Yamato rolled over, her surviving crew was singing the national anthem, or that old, gnarly, painfully appropriate Song of the Warrior, to which the chorus went, If I go to sea, I shall return a corpse awash. Thus, for the sake of the emperor, I shall not die at home in bed. 
There are so few happy endings in Japanese battle legend. This was the inevitable, brutally violent end that they had been speeding towards since the psychopaths at Fleet Command sent the great ship on its grotesque one-way mission. A young officer stands on the overturned hull, stripped to his loincloth, swinging his katana, screaming bonsai at the circling American planes. The god of war holds his breath, as the greatest tribute ever constructed to his demonic glory exhales her death rattle. The world stands still, bracing itself. And that's when American Helldiver gunner Jack Souza saw, quote, the prettiest damn sight I ever did see. The Yamato, the crowning glory and swan song of the battleship era. The most fearsome warship ever built, the imperial juggernaut of his majesty the emperor, erupted into a thousand foot column of orange flame. ship's soul rode a magnificent mushroom cloud that rose five miles up into the heavens. A blooming flower of death, clearly seen by coast watchers on Kyushu over a hundred miles away. Thus, serving as the towering funeral pyre of the Imperial Japanese Navy. The time was 1423. After 102 minutes of savage combat, the Yamato was gone. Now wait, 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 wait. Don't you go nowhere. We ain't done by a long sight. Sure, Yamato is dead, but this ain't over. Over these last insanity-packed hours we've spent together, we've gotten to know what the Japanese are like, as warriors, as men, as a culture. And armed with this knowledge, you must know that this fight is not yet over. Come on, say it with me now, because nobody does death like the Japanese, and they ain't dead yet. Now, we all know that this war eventually ends with a pair of really big bangs, but before that happened, nobody knew that's how it was going to end. Shit, Truman didn't even know the bombs existed until a couple of months before he gave the go-ahead to drop them. So, 
let's put a pin in this future past that we are all living with. Because in April 1945, the vengeance-bent American juggernaut prepares an invasion on a magnitude so terrifying that it still remains unmatched for all time. What would that look like? Well, lucky for us, I happen to be holding in my hands the truly insane American battle plan, and holy shit, you've never seen anything like this. And at that same moment, Japan writhes like a rabid, gut-shot, cornered beast. What is she prepared to do in order to cement her warrior legacy for all time? How far would this nation go to defend its sacred soil? Well, taking Saipan and Tarawa and Luzon and Iwo Jima and Okinawa and all those other nightmares as prologue, we're looking at an absolutely fanatical, martyrdom-bent, captive population with no choice left to make. As I look at the Japanese defensive plans for their homeland, what I see is an island poised to become the epitome of hell on Earth. So, how does the war in the Pacific end without those bombs? Could the world even stomach an American-waged war of true annihilation? Could the Americans? Are you ready to play a little alternate history? I hope so. Because we are talking nothing less than Apocalypse Japan. But before all that, I gotta do some thanking. My infinite and undying thanks to Stephen Downs, the man we know as Master Chief, for so generously lending his vocal talents as well as words of support. The boys of Task Force 58 were brought to life by the voices of Johnny Verena, Eric Schmecky Wrights, and Matty Kresh. Now over these last years, I've utilized a variety of sources to develop this story, all of which are listed on the website, wardaddypodcast.com, but one stands head and shoulders above the rest. This podcast would truly not have been possible without the incredible work of Russell Spur. His book, A Glorious Way to Die, was not only the inspiration for these last episodes, but made up the core of my research, as well as serving as a North Star to follow. Crack that baby open, you'll see what I mean. You want more? You want to go deeper into this truly insane world of the kamikaze? Check out the source list on the website. There's a little kamikaze library there just waiting for you to uh, dive in. I also want to thank you, the human listening to this right now. Thank you for your ears. Thank you for coming on this little adventure with me. This here is a collaborative art, and by that I mean it's your imagination doing all the heavy lifting and bringing this story screaming to life. I think we make a pretty good team, don't you? Now, I'll keep supplying the booms, but... I also gotta ask you for your help. If you're digging this, then please, share this podcast with your tribe. You ever see the movie Saving Private Ryan? Who'd you see it with? If that person doesn't know about this podcast, then you're fucking up. Subscribe on iTunes or Spotify or Instagram or wherever. Leave a review, give me a like, all of that bullshit. This thing is free. 
No ads for fucking stamps.com or Blue Apron or any of that shit. If you're hearing this, you can help this podcast grow. And finally, to stay updated on everything War Daddy, follow War Daddy Podcast on Instagram. That's my preferred way to keep the content coming between episodes. I'm also fixing to have another run of those War Daddy flasks, hand etched by yours truly, available again for sale real soon. They went pretty damn fast last time around, which I appreciate, so fret not. You didn't miss out just yet. You'll have one last chance to grab one. I'm thinking there's like 10 left. You want to lend some support and get something pretty killer in return? Well, that'd be a pretty great way to do it. I'm also aiming to have some t-shirts on the way too, so keep an eye on War Daddy Podcast on Instagram. All right. Time for a quick break. Pour another dram, twist up another joint, and we'll pick this up in another dimension. The final stage of the war in the Pacific in a world without the bombs. Prepare yourself for Apocalypse Japan. Cheers till then.